Hello, Prestige Heads, and welcome to American Prestige. I'm Danny Bessner, here as always with my friend and comrade Derek Davison, and we are excited to bring you the news. Derek, let's start with Yemen's resumption of flights to Saudi Arabia. Yeah, this is, uh, I thought we'd start on a positive note this week for a change. Uh, a Yemen Airways flight uh, on Saturday carried uh, about 270 uh, people. Uh, direct from Sana'a to the Saudi city of Jeddah. Most or maybe all of them uh, were heading to participate in the Hajj, which is going to take place later this month. So uh, this, you know, is a relatively nondescript event, except for the fact that it's the first time uh, there's been a direct flight from Sana'a to Saudi Arabia since 2016. Uh, That's when the Saudis imposed their air and sea blockade on northern Yemen, uh, which is, of course, still controlled by uh, the rebel Houthi movement. Uh, and so uh, this is a pretty big deal. It's it's a sign that you know, the peace process, which uh, has not gotten a lot of headlines and, and, you know, hasn't made all that much progress of late, but it's still there. It's still, you know, the, there's still some slow developments here, slow moving developments here in terms of hopefully coming to a complete end and you know, bringing the Yemeni civil war uh, to a complete end. Uh, so, uh, you know, good news, uh, for, for a little bit of a change up. Yeah, Derek, I, I like this positive vibe you've got. Uh, uh there's going to be, gonna this be is tough the first, to keep it going. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no, we're done. Like I think next, right now. Yeah, the next story is going to be, uh, but, uh, this is the first of five planned flights all again, uh, related to the forthcoming Hajj, uh, bringing Yemenis who, uh, presumably have not had a chance really to uh, make the pilgrimage over the last several years, uh, giving them a chance to do it. Uh, thank you, Derek. Let's move on to uh, back to the sad. Uh, let's talk about yeah, Israel-Palestinian violence in the West Bank. Uh, there's been a lot of it this week. Uh, on Monday, an Israeli arrest raid in Jenin uh, turned really violent, even by Israeli uh, military standards. There was uh, apparently... This was an attempt to arrest two suspected militants uh, in Janine, I think in the the displaced refugee camp uh, in Janine. The Israelis say their forces came under fire uh, and several several soldiers were wounded. And so to cover their extraction, the Israelis brought in helicopter gunships uh, and just kind of opened fire on crowds of people. Five people were killed. Five Palestinians were killed. Uh, a sixth later died uh, of wounds suffered in, in that engagement. Then on Tuesday, there was an incident at the Eli settlement, uh, which is kind of in the central part of the West Bank geographically. A uh, Palestinian gunman killed four Israelis uh, in that shooting incident, which was later claimed by Hamas. In retaliation for that, a mob of a couple hundred, 200 to 300 Israeli settlers uh, just kind of descended on a village called Tumlis uh, Aya and uh, killed at least one person, or at least one person was killed in this mob violence. They destroyed a number of homes and other properties. Um, I, I say one person was killed. I, I, I believe 
uh, they were probably killed by Israeli security forces, which responded to this riot either to help the rioters uh, or they help the mob or to uh, stop the mob, depending on whose story you believe. Uh, I, I tend toward the former, but who am I to say? Uh, and then subsequently on Tuesday, there was an Israeli drone strike that killed at least three people, again in Janine in the refugee camp. Uh, the Israelis say they were targeting a terrorist cell. It's been many years since the Israelis have carried out uh, an assassination airstrike in the West Bank. Uh, so that's a, a, another uh, unfortunate development. Um, underlying this, of course, is the Israeli policy in the West Bank. And there was a, a policy change made over the weekend that gave Finance Minister Betsylaw Smotrich, who's one of these arch-conservative uh, pro-settlement uh, folks who are uh, rife within Benjamin Netanyahu's cabinet, and who has, as Finance Minister, as part of his coalition agreement, got Netanyahu to basically give him control over the administration of the West Bank, take it out of uh, the, the Defense Department, where it had been, or the Defense Ministry. Uh, Smotrich has, has now been given... Uh, he was voted by the, the cabinet uh, over the weekend, basically unilateral authority to approve new settlement construction. Typically in the past, new settlement construction had to go through a number of stages, uh, which meant there were a number of bottleneck points where objections could be raised uh, to new plans. Not that this really stopped anything from happening, but there was still there was some sense of a break in the system. That that may be gone now. I'm not entirely clear on all the details, but Smotrich seems to have gotten uh, a fairly free hand here to do whatever he wants in terms of settlement, which is only going to make things more tense in the West Bank. Uh, there will there has been some criticism of this from the Biden administration, but of course, as we are well aware, that criticism never goes past rhetoric. Wow! Uh, so shock. there's not going to be any wow. any They're blowback not do uh, from from DC, even though ostensibly the U.S. government opposes settlements. It certainly opposes making it, you know, streamlining the process of approving new settlement uh, units. Thank you, Derek. Depressing news as usual. Um, all right, let's move on to Mali and what they want with regards to the UN peacekeepers there. Mali's ruling junta has reportedly asked the United Nations to basically close down its peacekeeping operation, which has been in Mali since 2013. Uh, it arrived in the aftermath of the northern uh, Mali Tuareg uprising, which began in 2012. And this is part and parcel, I think, of the of Mali's ruling junta uh, kind of falling out with Western governments across the board, with France, with Germany, with the EU, with the United States, um, over, to some degree, issues of governance, um, but also the, the junta uh, is aligned, seems to be aligning itself more and more with uh, Russia and the, the Wagner Group. And in this particular geopolitical climate, it's, it's sort of an either-or thing. So they've, they've asked the United Nations to shut down its peacekeeping operation. The peacekeeping unit, which is, uh, the acronym is MINUSMA, hasn't really kept much peace, obviously. Mali is still uh, struggling very much with a jihadist insurgency across the country. Certainly, northern Mali is no exception. Uh, the peacekeepers haven't done much to rein in that insurgency, but they have been garrisoning a number of cities, major cities in the north that might otherwise, uh, that are essentially surrounded, they're sort of islands in a sea of uh, areas that are controlled by militants. So uh, if the the UN were to withdraw, there is a potential for these cities uh, to be vulnerable to attack. 
from the militants. Now, the, the junta has already gotten pushback from the German government, uh, among others. Uh, the German government does have a detail of soldiers attached to the peacekeeping force. I don't think they're under the command of the, uh, the UN hierarchy, but they're attached to the peacekeeping force and serve basically in a reconnaissance function. And the German defense ministry said, you know, they're, they're looking to a structured exit. That's what they called it, a structured exit that would take place next year, uh, as has uh, been talked about, uh, within the UN, but not is obviously not the immediate withdrawal. Uh, the Malians are demanding. There is a vote to, that's supposed to take place in the UN Security Council later this month on renewing the peacekeeping missions mandate. Uh, so it's possible that Russia, for example, would veto uh, a renewal if, if that's what, uh, you know, if that, if it's in Russia's interest to do so, uh, which could force a close, uh, a closure. Now, the other factor in this is that, and this is just broken on Thursday uh, before we uh, recorded, uh, so I don't have a, a ton of details here, but the former Tuareg rebels, or maybe it would say, be better to say the dormant, Tuareg rebels in northern Mali released a statement saying that if the junta goes forward with this and forces the UN uh, to withdraw its peacekeeping mission, they would regard that as a violation. They called it a fatal blow, actually, to the peace deal that th this coalition of Tuareg uh, groups signed with the government to end that 2012 uprising. So that could lead to you know, an, a whole revival of uh, that conflict, uh, which would obviously just add to the the instability in the country. Thanks, Derek. Uh, let's move on now to Sudan, and maybe you could give us some updates. And by maybe, I know you will. Uh, absolutely. Uh, I'm, I I live to serve. Uh, so there's a few things. One is, of course, in the status of negotiations. And then uh, there's a couple of updates in terms of the conflict itself. The military and the rapid support forces uh, agreed over the weekend to another ceasefire. This one was supposed to last 72 hours, uh, went into effect Sunday morning. It appears to have at least le caused a lull in fighting, uh, not a, you know, obviously as as all of these ceasefires that these two sides have, have engaged in uh, over the last two months, uh, two plus months at this point, it, it, was, it didn't involve a, a full cessation of fighting. It, it, it was more of a lull. There were violations attributed to both sides. Um, but like the previous ceasefire, the most recent one, which was a 24-hour ceasefire, it, when it ended, there was a really massive, apparently, uptick in fighting, especially in Khartoum and uh, Omdurman and, and Bahri, the, the, the three cities that make up Sudan's capital area. So, you know, what, what good was the ceasefire? Actually, it's, it's hard to say. There was some humanitarian aid delivery. So that is, that's, that's something. But again, there's, there's no evidence really that either of these parties is interested in stopping the fighting uh, anytime soon. And as a consequence, uh, the United States has apparently adjourned the uh, negotiating forum that it had opened uh, with this, with Saudi Arabia in Jeddah, uh, which is where these le most recent truces have been negotiated. Uh, the U.S. has decided that's enough. It's not uh, this. This isn't accomplishing anything. Uh, I would say it's become something of a diplomatic embarrassment for the U.S. to have these uh, these talks not achieve anything uh, of substance. 
Uh, and so they've decided to to shut them down, which leaves no forum, basically, in which uh, the two sides are communicating with one another. There are channels that they can use regionally. Uh, the U.S. might be willing to come back uh, to the table if uh, there's some indication of, of a willingness to act, really negotiate on uh, a, a legitimate real ceasefire. But um, so that's that's discouraging. Back to discouraging. I feel more. Comfortable yeah, back, now. back to Thank discouraging. You, Absolutely. Uh, in terms of the fighting, uh, there was an indication, uh, Reuters reported on this earlier in the week, there's an indication that there was some kind of uh, massacre of civilians in West Darfur, and specifically the capital uh, of West Darfur State, Janina, the city of Janina, last week. Now, news from every other part of Sudan uh, outside the capital region has been very spotty throughout this conflict, but uh, Doctors Without Borders... Uh, claimed on Monday that it had received about 15,000 people fleeing that city over the pa the previous four days, which does indicate uh, some kind of major event. Uh, they, the people, many of the people who fled uh, reported seeing bodies, dead bodies along the way, people who had been killed. Um, the governor of West Darfur State was, was murdered, assassinated, essentially, probably by the RSF or, or uh, its tribal affiliates. Uh, so that may have precipitated some attempt, some attempted exodus and, and you know, who, uh, the RSF may have uh, started shooting at people as they were attempting to flee the city. So, uh, again, hard to know specifically what happened, but there does appear to have been some real uh, calamity that, that uh, happened in that, that state uh, in recent days. Uh, the other thing to note, again, from outside the capital region is that there are new reports of fighting in South Kordofan state, previously the conflict had been, uh, I guess localized would be the best term, to the capital region, to, to Darfur, the Darfur region in general, uh, which is broken up into four states, uh, and in North Kordofan state, but now it appears to have spread to the south uh, and has brought in a rebel group that's active there, the Sudan People's Liberation Movement North, uh, or one faction of it. Uh, which is active in South Kordofan. There were reports on Wednesday of uh, that rebel group attacking an army position in South Kordofan. Uh, whether I, I, I doubt there's a, a direct uh, relationship between the SPLM and the uh, RSF because there's a lot of bad blood there. Uh, but there's a lot of bad blood with the military as well, so it's not terribly surprising. It would be terribly surprising uh, if this rebel group were to use uh, the fighting as a you know an attempt to to kind of uh, pursue its aims in that region. So just another kind of expansion of the conflict. Thanks, Derek. Uh, let's talk a bit about the Grato that is NATO. Uh, so this is just briefly. I know you've been particularly concerned about the uh, the status of NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg. Haven't been able uh, to sleep, man. It's yeah, been a rough week. And, uh, so it looks like uh, I, I think this will uh, make you happy. It looks like he's going to stick around uh, in his job for at least another year. Uh, Thank God. His four year term is is the the four year quote unquote four year term. Uh, that he's uh, currently in actually ended last year. He was asked to stay on for another year because of the war in Ukraine. And, uh, you know, that's still going on. So the, the alliance hasn't been able to agree internally on an, a, a replacement uh, on a new candidate. So it looks like he'll be staying for, for at least another year. Uh, I just wanted to put your mind at ease on that. 
I'm going to celebrate tonight. Uh, let's move now to Ukraine and let's start with the African peace delegation. Yes, I think we mentioned this a few weeks ago. There was a a, a number of African leaders. Uh, South African President Cyril Ramaphosa has been the was the sort of driving force behind this. Uh, but I think a half dozen of them uh, announced some time back that they were going to make a trip as a delegation to Ukraine and Russia uh, to press for some kind of, uh, if not resolution, then at least a, an end. Uh, to the fighting. Uh, Africa is, of course, a continent-wide uh, being hit fairly hard by this conflict, which is affecting uh, two countries that are basically grain, you know, bread baskets for the world uh, and particularly for Africa. Uh, so, you know, they've got humanitarian reasons for wanting to do this. They've got economic reasons. And a number of these leaders have cordial or better relationships with uh, Vladimir Putin, Russian President Vladimir Putin. So there was some hope that they could maybe make some progress here. They made no progress, as far as I can tell. They went to Ukraine on Friday, uh, where Volodymyr Zelensky, the president of Ukraine, told them basically the same thing he tells anybody else who says, uh, you know, can we get a break in this fighting, which is that there will be no peace until Russia withdraws entirely from uh, Ukrainian territory, uh, which of course is not uh, going to happen anytime soon. So that, that, turns out to have been kind of a bust they went to russia on saturday and met with putin in st petersburg uh where uh putin you know essentially told them uh, to get bent i think i mean ramaphosa kind of uh you know they were giving remarks you don't hear get the, bent the, much the these days Derek. Media. thank you uh, i i like get bent i i use it uh, as often as i can but he you know they were speaking in front of you know an assembled group of reporters and ramaphosa said to you know, the war has to end. Uh, he talked about the negative impact it's had on Africa and, uh, you know, elsewhere around the world. And Putin didn't really budge uh, in any way. He, uh, I think, said he appreciated uh, the perspective, there, the balanced perspective uh, of the delegates, but there was no indication that he, uh, you know, modulated his, uh, his position uh, in any sense. So th- those guys went home, I think, having achieved nothing uh, of note. Let's move on to the counteroffensive. Yes, the Russian governor, a Russian appointed governor of the occupied parts of the of Ukraine, Zaporizhia Oblast, suggested earlier this week, and then Deputy Defense Minister of Ukraine Hanna Maliar seemed to confirm uh, again earlier this week that the counteroffensive has now recovered eight villages. Uh, in Zaporizhia and I think uh, in Donetsk, uh, is sort of they're, they're pushing southeast. Since it kicked off earlier this month, um, this is some progress. It is, uh, I think, not the pro- the the level of progress that uh, the Ukrainians were hoping for. Even Zelensky acknowledged uh, on Wednesday that the advance has been uh, what he's, he his term was slower than desired. Uh, although he stressed that you know it's not a a Hollywood production, so you know they're going to grind it out. They're not, uh, despite the the dram- lack of any dramatic uh, success. It does appear that the Ukrainians have not yet committed the full uh, amount of the the forces they had amassed for this counteroffensive to it yet. Uh, but but it's also true that they haven't really hit the strongest parts of the Russian defensive lines 
uh, yet. So I don't think there's there's much reason to expect dramatic progress at any point here. Uh, although that's the kind of thing that could you know could turn on a dime uh, essentially. So very slow going. The Ukrainians I think have run into a lot of uh, resistance from Russian air power. The Russians do have air superiority in this region, and and any advance that the Ukrainians make pushes their soldiers kind of out of the range of uh, Ukraine's air defense systems. So uh, they leave themselves vulnerable to airstrikes in particular. And I think that's uh, having a major effect in, uh, on, the, uh, on the slow progress of their offensive. Now on Thursday, early Thursday morning, again, this is something that just came through in the news uh, before we, uh, we started recording. Uh, it, the Ukrainians apparently struck a bridge, one of uh, a handful of bridges that connects Crimea, the Crimean Peninsula, to mainland mainland Ukraine. Uh, I'm unclear on just how damaged uh, the bridge is, but I would assume it's at least damaged enough that it's it's going to be difficult for the Russians to use it for uh, bringing military hardware to the front line. So that that could affect. Uh, the Russian supply line a bit. Um, I don't know what the response is going to be. I would assume, you know, some uh, new round of heavy airstrikes from the Russians on uh, Ukrainian cities. But there is a so that that's just a, a a recent development that could have some some repercussions for the counteroffensive. Although I wouldn't again, I wouldn't expect anything dramatic. Let's turn to the new Cold War and let's begin with Blinken's trip to China. Yes, Anthony Blinken, the U.S. Secretary of State, arrived in China over the weekend, uh, and I would say um, his trip went probably exceeded uh, expectations. He met on Monday with Xi Jinping, the Chinese president. Uh, there was it was up in the air whether he was going to actually get uh, an audience with Xi uh, during his visit. So the fact that he he got one uh, is uh, noteworthy in itself. Uh, they apparently agreed uh, to try to stabilize U.S.-Chinese relations, uh, which admittedly is ambiguous, but it's still a better, you know, it seems like it, we're in a better place uh, than we were after the, you know, great balloon of death fiasco earlier this year. Um, the Chinese, Chinese government did, or Chinese officials did turn Blinken's main request down. He had asked for a resumption of regular military-to-military contact, uh, Chinese government is is irked by a number of things in that on that front, especially the fact that their uh, current defense minister has been sanctioned. He's blacklisted uh, by the U.S. government, so they're they're resisting uh, that. So you know, it was not a, a complete success. Uh, but again, I think uh, expectation my expectations anyway were were very low. So I would argue that it uh, it, it exceeded the low bar that I had set for it. Immediately afterwards, though, uh, our president, uh, Joe Biden, on Tuesday at a political fundraiser in California, decided to just thoroughly insult Xi for some reason. He referred to him as a dictator. Uh, he talked about China's economic difficulties. He uh, held forth on uh, what he said was the great embarrassment that she must have felt during the balloon of death fiasco uh, because he implied that she wasn't even aware of the balloon or wasn't aware that it had uh, gone off course and was floating across the, the United States. 
uh, all of, you know, all kind of very belittling, uh, at least on paper. I didn't listen to the speech, but it all sounds fairly belittling uh, of the Chinese president. Unsurprisingly, that drew an angry response from the Chinese foreign ministry, which characterized Biden's comments as extremely absurd and irresponsible, called them a political provocation. Uh, so it's possible that whatever progress Blinken made uh, during his trip was undermined in a you know uh, speech that Biden gave to his money men uh, the, the day after Blinken left. I, I doubt all the progress was undone, but it probably did undo some of it. So that's the uh, system system works is, is basically what I'm saying. And it's good, usual. To have, good to have a president whose uh, mind is, is as sharp as ever and, and you know, is uh, speaking off the cuff uh, in ways that are advancing uh, the cause of global peace and stability. Derek, let's end with Modi's state visit. Yeah, this is just starting. So I don't have a lot to say about this, but you know, as we're recording this, uh, Narendra Modi, the Indian prime minister is in DC um, he is getting the full state visit treatment from Biden. Uh, this, despite the fact that uh, Modi is a far right, I would say, autocrat in the style of the autocrats that Joe Biden says we're supposed to be fighting against. There are serious human rights concerns about his government and his administration. Uh, you know, there is a uh, there are a lot of reasons to to sort of. Uh, question the decision to fet him in this way. Uh, nevertheless, uh, it is se- increasingly central uh, to U.S. foreign policy to get India to undo basically decades of neglect or outright hostility during the Cold War and try to get India uh, firmly into the U.S. orbit for reasons having to do both with China, uh, because India is viewed as a key uh, potential uh, component of an anti-China alliance, and now to get it uh, to pry it away from Russia. Uh, one of the big issues in terms of the latter is going to be uh, military uh, military assistance. India, for decades, has been uh, fairly heavily reliant on the Russian weapons industry, and that kind of relationship locks you into some long-term connections. You have to, you, you know, you rely on, you buy somebody's weapons platform, you're reliant on them for ammunition, you're reliant on them for maintenance. Uh, so it builds a, a long-term functionality into the relationship. The U.S. is, is trying to uh, steadily pry uh, India away from Russia. And so they're, you know, uh, they're selling jet engines for, for military aircraft. They're, they're dangling drones um, and so and I, I would expect other kind of military applications, whether outright military or outright arms or sort of dual use uh, types of things. I would expect those to be on the agenda as well uh, as the U.S. tries to transition India out of uh, its relationship with Russia and bring it uh, into uh, the, the Western orbit. Thank you, Derek. And everyone, please like and subscribe and we'll see you soon. Bye. Bye. Bye.